Father, once again, it is a, an incredible privilege. It is also a responsibility, Lord, to come and hear your word, to get into it, Lord, and by faith to obey. So, Lord, that's our intent tonight. Please work in all of us, every single person that's here. Lord, we're asking you to speak, to reveal, and to touch us to change our lives forever for your glory and the good of the people of this world. Amen. So we're going to be in uh, Hebrews, Hebrews, chapter 1. We're going to read verses, I'm going to read verses 14 through chapter 2, verse 5. Now I'm going to read it very slowly. Um, the thing about this, oh, I was told not to get too wild. I'd like to move around here, and these guys said, constrain yourself. So that's going to be hard for me. Um, this is the first warning in the book of Hebrews. It's got five warnings, and they are serious. And uh, they are meant for Christians. They are not for unbelievers. Uh, unbelievers need to be warned in a different way. This is for believers. And I hope to convince you of that tonight as we go through this. This is the first warning. There is considerable controversy on some of the passages in the book of Hebrews. Why? Because they say that uh, our salvation is in jeopardy. And I'm going to, we need to talk about that. That's something we need to talk about. We don't want to just skip over this, pretend it's not there, or just make light of it and uh, make something, you know, up that's easy to digest one way or the other. Doesn't matter. And so we, we need to be like noble Bereans. And it's, it's, it's very likely tonight that I will actually stir up more questions than I answer, okay? I want you to know that. Uh, I'm not intending to do that. That will just be part and parcel of this thing we're looking at, okay? And it's okay. In fact, you know, I have found that the times where I've come to understand the Word of God more is when all of a sudden a question comes up and I have to wrestle with it. I have to wrestle with it. And I have to ask the author, what does it mean? What's its implications, Okay? And think of the prayers that Paul prayed in uh, Ephesians 1 and 3. He prayed. There he laid out such incredible high understanding concerning the plan of God. And then he went right into prayer. And he prayed, God, please open the eyes of the Ephesians that they could really see these things. So that's my prayer tonight. Okay. Ephe uh, Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 through 5. Okay. Are not they all ministering spirits? That's the angels that was talked about in chapter 1 there. They are sent forth for service for the sake of those who are about to inherit salvation, who will inherit salvation. Salvation is something inherited. Therefore, we ought to give more earnest heed. We ought to give heed more abundantly to the things that we have heard, lest perhaps we drift by it. For if every word spoken through angels proved firm and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, a salvation of such proportions, which having had its beginning and being spoken by the Lord has been confirmed to us by those who heard, God bearing witness with them both with signs and wonders, and by various works of power and by distributions, gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. 
for it. It was not to angels that he subjected the coming world, the coming inhabited earth concerning which we are speaking. So I'm going to start right there with that last verse, okay? I'm going to work this in reverse, and I'm going to go to the middle. How many of you ever thought about that phrase that's in verse 5 there? You know, again, I found myself over years of habit, I quickly pass over things in the Scripture as though I know what it's talking about. Are you like that? I just, well, I got that. It's English, right? I can understand English. But this is deep thought, and there's the context. He's saying here it was not to angels. He just spent the whole chapter one talking about angels. Okay? And he says, God is not going to subject, subject the coming inhabited earth, the coming world concerning which we are talking about. Now, just like a lot of, a lot of books, and Hebrews, I think, is more, is more distinct in this feature. It brings up words that it uses again and again and again and again. Tremendous emphasis, okay? So if we can pick up these key words and really grasp what they're talking about, if you understand what I mean, we can step back. I see I'm, I'm not going outside the parameters here. Step back and we can get the big picture, and that's what we want to do. Is we want to get the big picture. So here is the, the world. It, it talks about this word to come, and it's used again and again. It talks about the powers of the age to come. It talks about the city that is to come. It talks about the one that when he comes again to this inhabited world. God has said, let all the angels of God worship him. So it's something about to come. And what is to come is the coming inhabited world. I would like to go now to one of my most favorite two verses here. They're among my top. They're in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. Let me read them. This is the scene that sets the tone for Revelation. The whole book of Revelation could revolve around chapters 4 and 5. There is the throne of the God of the universe. He's there, assembled. It says 10,000 times 10,000 angelic host. These four living creatures, these elders, all kinds of people. And John is taken by the Spirit up, and he sees this scene, and there's this scroll in the hands of the Creator. And, uh, you know, he started weeping. He says, there's nobody worthy to take that scroll. And then all of a sudden, the Son of the Lamb steps forward. And they sing this song, verses 9 and 10. And they sing a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And have purchased for God by your blood men and women out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom. Priests to our God. Now this last phrase. And I tried to hammer this before recently. And they will what? Where? Say that again, please. Um, one more time. We're going to reign. On the earth. Now in the heavens, the heavens come down to the earth. When the Lord Jesus Christ was preaching, the first thing he, pre the first thing he preached was repent. Why? Because the kingdom of the heaven, the kingdom of God has come near. Of course, the rejection happened. The 
kingdom didn't come. But in our prayer, right, the model prayer, what do we pray? Father in heaven, let your name be sanctified, let your kingdom come and let your will be done. Where? On earth. There's not too many problems in heaven. A lot of problems. Where? You guys, you guys agree with me on that, don't you? Okay. All right. That is in fulfillment. That is in fulfillment of Genesis 1. God did this. He created man. How did he create him? In his own image, after his likeness, and what did he do? He gave them to have dominion over all the works of his hands. I think Rick, I think Paul are going to be talking about that the next two weeks. God's intent for man has been to be his representative in his kingdom on this earth. That's the issue. I talked about that on Saturday. I had a really good time preaching the gospel to the people at the, at the, uh, at the community meal. I got, I got stirred up, I'll tell you. How many were here? Was anybody here? Okay. You know what I'm talking about. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Okay. Now notice here, go back to Hebrews. Notice in that verse 5, it says this. He says, it was not to angels that he subjected the coming inhabited world concerning which we are speaking. Now what does that mean, right? He says that we're talking about this. This is the context whenever whatever this salvation is, that you potentially could neglect, that's when it will be realized. It's going to be realized in its fullness, in its fullness in the coming age, in the coming inhabited world. And then we're talking about it. Now where in the previous chapter, and we'll see it in the future, I'm not going to take my time, but where in the previous chapter was it talked about? Has anybody got a clue? Oh, come on, come on. There got to be a few guess, guesses out here. Paul? No. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6, and it says, When he brings again, that means he had been here prior, when he brings again the firstborn, that is another key word in the book of Hebrews, into the inhabited world, he says this, Let all the angels of God worship him. Now, one of the things I would encourage you guys to do, this is a lot of reading. I'm, I'm, I'm handing out homework tonight. You should spend the time to read the context of every single quote in the book of Hebrews. And that's a big job. Go read the context of every single quote in the book of Hebrews. Every single quote in chapter 1, with the exception of one as far as I could tell, has to do with the coming inhabited world concerning which the author is speaking about. It's talking about the Messianic age. It's talking about when the Messiah comes back and establishes his kingdom on this earth. That's what it's talking about. That's the context of all those quotes. Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. That's in a day to come. It's going to happen. I think it's going to be a big surprise to a lot of those guys out there that are in places of authority. They're going to be out of a job. Amen. I'm going to be liking that. They should be out of a job. Now, 
Coming back to Hebrews at the beginning. I'm not going to go into verse 4. There's a lot of things we're not going to go into. But here's verse 3. That's our focus, and we're going to play off of the other two verses preceding this. Let me ask you a question. What is this salvation? What is this salvation that is so great that if we neglect it and we drift on by it, it is worse than transgressing and disobeying the words that came at Sinai in the Old Covenant. That's what it's saying, am I right? That's what these verses are saying. So what is this salvation? And salvation, a lot of us just have a, it's unfortunate. Sometimes our view can be very narrow and short and um, not very deep. One of the things that the author is talking about again and again in this book is he's, he is exhorting the Hebrew Christians saying, you guys, you've been around long enough, you should be teachers, and what you are is a bunch of immature children who do not understand anything. You have no depth. Salvation. Part of the thing is that today, in the, I would say in the majority of modern Christendom, I'll put it that way, and I'm not meaning to be mean or belittle. I'm not. I'm not. I want to state the facts, the truth. So much focus on this salvation, which is so great, it says that here, is on so little of it. And part of it is, because of who we are, so much of the focus is on where we came from. Now, I would never belittle. I think it is an incredible, wonderful thing that I am not going to be facing the judge in eternal judgment to be put into the lake of fire for eternity. Are you glad about that? That is a huge thing, isn't it? That's a from. I got saved from that. You got saved from that. But the salvation that's being talked about in the book of Hebrews is not just merely a salvation from, it is a salvation to. You understand what I'm saying there? I want you to, I want to put a picture in your head. This is where I usually start jumping around and walking around. So please forgive me if I'm kind of doing like this, okay, up here. Here's a picture. I want you to think about this picture. The picture is of a poor, dirty thief. He's heard the announcement like I said on Saturday, of amnesty. The offer of pardon from the king, this thief has. And he has finally decided it's not worth it for what he's doing. He faces judgment if he ever gets caught, and he willingly surrenders to the king. He comes and surrenders. And what the king does is amazing. First off, the king forgives him. He pardons him. He absolves him from all debt, all that is due, the penalty for all the things he did wrong against the king and the kingdom. And he forgives him. And then he does something else. He cleans him up. Remember, he was a poor, dirty thief. He cleans him up. And then, please listen, and then he does an incredible thing that he doesn't have to do. He adopts that thief into his own family, and he makes him an heir of the kingdom. Do you see the to and the from? 
It's not just a rescue. It's not, we're not talking about just a rescue from a lake of fire from hell. We're talking about the potential of being heirs with the Son of God. Later on, it's going to say this. You know, talked about him. How much is the Lord Jesus heir of? Think back to chapter 1, verse 2. Kevin talked about that. How much? Two words. All things. And there's not one thing that came into being that didn't come into, a be, be, into existence through, but through him. He is the heir of all things. Do you know what this book is going to talk to us about? We have the potential, dear brothers and sisters, to be the co-heirs of the heir. He has a very unique title in this book, The Firstborn. I hope, you know, again, praying for Rick, praying for Paul, God open up to us. Here is this person who is not ashamed to call us brothers. You ever thought about that? He is not ashamed to call us brothers. One of the words that's used already in chapter 1 is that it says that he has anointed the Lord Jesus with the oil of gladness more than his companions, above his, above his partners. The word's translated a number of different ways. That's a key word in the book of Hebrews. Do you know that we are called to be companions of the Son of God? Often, you know, salvation, I'm going to look at it, I'm just going to mention it briefly, looked at it two different ways. Salvation is a saved from the, from the penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin, and saved from the presence of sin. And salvation is also likened to the birth of a human being who then is walking in discipline. We're going to talk about that when we get to chapter 12 of Hebrews. God receives the son, he, he receives every son and he scourges them. <laughs> I don't like that. And then it talks about maturity. It talks about a full grown man. Full grown, mature, perfect. That word perfect is not what we think about it. Perfect means fully mature. You have arrived at the thing, the very thing for which you were designed for, trained for, and have become. Past. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 8. Let's go there real quick. Ephesians 2, 5 and 8. Salvation is past. Past tense. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in offenses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's past tense. And like a birth, I firmly believe this, I'm hoping to convince you all, like a birth, a birth can never be undone. I've never known a single birth that ever occurred within the human race that ever was undone. Something might happen afterwards, but it is never as though it never occurred. You with me on that? At least listen. Be a noble Berean. Listen and think about that, what I'm saying here. Okay. Verse 8 says the same thing. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. In the passage in Hebrews, it talks about reward. And I'll tell you, there's a world of difference between a gift and a reward. And we are dealing, we as Christians have to deal with both of these. The gift of God in our salvation, we are saved from the lake of fire, from the penalty of sin, is a, is a gift of God. It's not works. Okay, present. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Colossians 1.18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To us who are being saved. We're being saved. We have been saved, right? Ephesians is clear on that. We've been saved, but now we're being saved. And I think that has very much to do with what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. So we're, we're like, a, we're like a, a child growing up. And again, the author of Hebrews, whoever it was, talked about these guys. Talked about these Jewish Christians. He says, you guys are like children. You have need of milk again instead of meat. How many here are meat and potatoes people? All right, come on. There's a lot of Americans here. I know we're going to fish and all kinds of stuff like that, but I still like a good steak. Meat, strong meat. And finally, we, we read that verse in Hebrews 1.14. Those who will inherit salvation. And salvation as an inheritance is looked at that way. And the focus of Hebrews, the focus of Hebrews is not on the first aspect of salvation. You have been saved. It assumes that. In fact, the whole view of this book is like, and the author has this in mind many times. We'll see this as we walk through the, this book. It's the children of Israel have come out of Egypt. They are passing through the wilderness with the intention to go into the good land. Now I'll tell you this. Not a single individual that came out of the, out of the land of Egypt ever went back. Not a single one. You can't find a passage in the scripture for that. But I'll tell you what. Not everybody made it in. And I believe that's the warning that we have. We're saved. We have been saved. I'm born again. God has forgiven me of my sins, cleansed me from my unrighteousness, given me a, a, a new heart, a new spirit, and he's put his very spirit within me. And now I'm told, work out my own salvation so with the intent that I can receive something to come in the future day. I want to read something here out of a commentary on Hebrews. It's from a man named G.H. Lang. And I wish I could say this a thousand times. The greatest thing, this, this salvation that we are to inherit, and it's particularly focused on that which is to come. This salvation, listen, is the greatest thing that God can ever design or grant. God is not stingy. God intends incredible things for us. The essence of it 
The essence of this greatest thing is sharing the relationship of a son to the eternal father. I don't know if you... This book is about not just God the son. This book is about that very God who is the creator of all things. And the intended heir became a man. And by himself, it says, he purged our sins. And having accomplished an incredible thing, an eternal redemption, he did an incredible thing. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I, I don't have the appreciation for what that's talking about. Let me, let me see if I can frame it. A man is in the glory at the highest point of the universe. The, the, the greatest physical manifestation is a man in the glory seated on the throne of God as the heir of all things. Am I making that impression right? Do you hear what I'm saying? All of that stuff in the first chapter was all about not the son before incarnation, not the son in eternity past. It's all about the son having accomplished eternal redemption is seated now at the right hand of glory because all those, all those quotes are about him in the messianic kingdom to come as the heir of all things. Am I making sense? It includes these things. Listen to this. Conformity to the body of the glorified Son of God. How are you feeling tonight? I know some of you guys. You got a gimp. You got a back. Oh. You got all kinds of things. Who wouldn't want to have a body that's incorruptible and immortal? Anybody here not want that? How many are you waiting for that? How many are longing for that? It's co-heirship with him of the entire universe. This blows my mind. That in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his kindness and grace toward us in Christ Jesus as the co-heirs with Christ. I think one of the parallel passages of much of what is spoken of in Hebrews comes from Romans chapter 8. And I would encourage you to read that again and again. We're not going to glory as though glory is going to be in a realm all around us and it doesn't affect us personally. In Romans chapter 8, what does it say? Is it ends that chain, that golden chain. Those he foreknew, he also justified. Those he justified, these he also what? Glorified. Brothers and sisters, do you know that the salvation we are to inherit, I don't have it already, right? Oh, now I'm going to jump around again. I don't have this, right? I'm up here, just a weak, frail, old codger. You know, Kevin just turned 60. I'm turning 62. You know, Rick, I know, I know Rick's ahead of me. I know Lowell, you know, you guys. You guys, I still, I feel for you now. Yeah. So great a salvation.
so great a salvation. But listen to this. And this is what the Hebrew, book of Hebrews is talking about. We have a salvation. Never can be taken away. I cannot be taken away forever as being a child of God. But I can most certainly be disciplined and scourged in a very bad way. Listen to what happened to one of these. In the Old Testament, there is something talked about called the firstborn, the rights of the firstborn son. Reuben and Esau were both firstborn sons. Go with me to chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 16. I personally think that both of these guys are mentioned here, though one of them is not mentioned by name. He says, lest there be any fornicator. If you know the situation with Reuben, he lost the firstborn rights because he had fornication with his father's wife. He lost it. And now it's mentioned, a profane person like Esau, who for one meal gave up his own birthright. He gave it up. He did not account it as anything. He wanted a bowl of porridge, hot porridge, over his birthright. And then here's what he did. He says, for you know that also afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance. It's not that he wasn't regretting it. It's that once the, the blessing had been given by his father Isaac, there was no retrieval. He would not repent of it. We're going to face this again in chapter 6 of Hebrews. When the children of Israel came up to that land and they wouldn't go in, God said, that's it. Not going in. Please, please, oh, we, we, we regret it. We're so sorry. We're so sorry. It's not that they weren't sorry. They were very, 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 very sorry. And God said, no, I'm not going to change my mind, which is the real heart of repentance, a change of mind. But listen, go back to chapter 11, verse 20. It says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Esau was blessed. Go back. You can look at the record. He was blessed. Esau, ble Isaac blessed him. But not with the blessing of the firstborn. No retrieval. No retrieval. One more thing, and then we'll get to the punchline. There's this word in verse 2 of, of Hebrews 2. It talks about that every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. And I think most of the translations probably that you all have here say the word reward. The basis of this word reward is wages. And notice, reward is not like some people think, all, all positive. No. According to this verse, guess what? There's negative rewards. The Lord has said very clearly a number of times, including at the book of Revelation, just so that we get it one more time. He says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to render every man according to his works. Now we know that beginning salvation, that birth from above, it has nothing to do with our own works. Absolutely not. Romans chapter 4 I'm just going to read this quickly. Romans 4, 1 through 4. 
He talks about Abraham was justified. If it was out of works, then he has something to boast in, but not before God. He believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages, same basic word, are not according to grace, but according to what is due. And so I would, see, these are the questions I'm raising, aren't they? I would, I would propose to you very strongly that our, the beginning of our salvation is a free thing, gift of God. But the, the right to rule and reign with him in that kingdom to come is a reward that we can lose. Here's the punchline. That reward can be lost through neglect. That's scary. The reward can be lost due to neglect. He uses the word to drift by, to drift away, to drift past. The picture is of a ship being caught by wind and tide, which through negligence is thus carried past the desired and intended port and haven. That's what's there, to drift past. And that comes from neglect. Vincent, who is a scholar, I love his writings for a great book, Vincent's Word Studies, he said of neglect, lapse from truth and goodness is more often the result of inintention rather than design. No one designs to lose something, right? If you've got this reward, if you've got this inheritance, you don't design to lose it. But if you don't understand it, if it's not that significant to you like Esau, that's what he's saying, you will neglect it. And by neglecting, you will just drift on by. You'll drift on by. There's a quote here I got. It's a very loose quote from a brother who came from Myanmar. He was here couple years ago, and he said this, I could never lay, live here in the United States. It's too hard to be a Christian. Some of the people that heard him were quite shocked. What he meant was this, the temptations aren't, it's very clear when you're in a place like Myanmar, when you're in a place like Iran, it's very clear. Either you're on one side of the fence or you're on the other side of the fence. That's pretty clear. Here, so here's my punchline, guys. I believe that Western Christianity, the church in the United States, evidenced by all the things we see here, by and large, I'm not hitting everybody, uh, this is not a condemnation, but it has very little vision of the world to come. It has very little vision of how great this salvation is. It has very little vision, and it's caught up today in worldliness, in the tide of this age is just caught up and what is going to happen brothers and sisters and I, I'm on fire they will neglect we can neglect we can neglect so great a salvation and we can drift right by it by being caught up in the course of this age and that's exactly what I believe Ronald meant when he said I would never want it's too hard I, I don't know if I could face that temptation every day. We're just here. It's in an onslaught. We're trying to take care of our lives. It's not, it's not a bad thing to focus on career. It's not a bad thing to focus on 
family. It's not a bad thing. But we know what the Lord said. If you love family more than me, you're not worthy of me. That's strong word, right? That's strong meat. It's real. It's not, he just didn't say that so that we'd kind of, oh, yeah, okay. It's, he meant it. And the, and the church here, the church in the West, uh, you know, the whole, pretty much the testimony of the church in Europe has, has gone away. There's very little testimony left in Europe at all. The, thing, the same thing is happening in Australia and New Zealand, and the same thing is happening here. And most of the testimony that's gonna, is coming out of the church in the world today is coming out from the persecuted believers who hold strong and fast and have a real bright testimony. Lord, we don't, we don't have to be like that, brothers and sisters. The warning here is not regarding apostasy. It is regarding neglect. It is not saying, no, I don't want this. I'm